I have to unmute that. If you turn with me in your Bible to John chapter number 2, we're going to continue. I started at the beginning of Christmas season to go through some Advent messages in the Gospel of John. And um, so we're going back to the book of Acts on the third Sunday in January. Next Sunday will be in John chapter 3. The following Sunday, we're going to take a look at uh, some leadership ideas, and then uh, we'll return to where we've been going verse by verse through Acts. That's our normal approach. And um, turn there with me to John chapter number 2, and I like this. I didn't know how it would work out going through uh, the first several chapters of John just kind of as, as an approach to Advent, but... The recurring idea that we've been seeing is that Advent is not just about the birth narrative of Christ. It's about the coming of Christ, and so it entails more than just the um, the uh, birth narrative. And here we're going to see another na- uh, aspect of that. John chapter 2, verse 13, and there the Bible says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What signs do you show us, show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Father, thank you for the Bible. Again, we thank you that you have given us a timeless truth and reality that we can refer to again and again to understand you and your purposes. God, thank you that you came into this world to bring to us truth and light. The life that was behind life as we understand it came here to make sense of everything. And so we thank you for that. We thank you, God, for giving us the Bible and how it clearly portrays you, your heart to us so that we can know you and follow you. And so we pray your spirit will help us now as we look in your word and we, we pray for you to open our understanding. God, give us willingness. Give us faith, Lord. Give us repentance where we need repentance and help us that we'll trust in you and follow you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today uh, we take a look at a different sort of uh, side of God's personality. We've been seeing that Advent clarifies to us what God is like. And so we saw it's important to move past this idea of a baby, and a baby uh, doesn't communicate that much to us apart from that a life has come. But then when that baby becomes a grown-up and begins to behave, we interpret his behavior. And when it's Jesus, the, the Scripture describes Jesus 
in Hebrews, I like how it describes what uh, his life meant by this little phrase, in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, we said that Jesus was God and that he was begotten but not made, and meaning that he had a birth and entered into our reality as a human being, but that wasn't the beginning for him. In the beginning, uh, for him, we say, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning that he's eternal. So we've seen that, but when God came to earth and we observe how he behaves, it gives us insight about what God is like. And so in this passage, one thing that we learn is that God sometimes got angry. God got angry. That God exhibited wrath in his personality. So it's important for us to look at this passage and say, okay, if that's the case, what made God angry? What was it that caused him to flip over tables? What was it that caused him to braid a whip and drive people out of the temple precinct? And in that way, we can say, okay, if we looked at our own life and worship, what might it be in the way that the church is that God might be angry regarding? Is there anything about the way that we depict God that God might have a problem with? Well, that's what happened in this passage today and so as we look at this we see that God came in and cleaned house and so that's what we want to think about and to begin with in the passage we see Jesus was incensed by their misplaced priorities they uh, he comes at Passover we know that Passover corresponds to the time that Jesus himself would be crucified and and so in John's gospel it's not a, a completely clear which uh, Passover it was of the three that would have occurred in the life of his ministry. And whether, some people say, were there two times that Jesus cleansed the temple or one time? Does this speak to the one incident when he cleansed the temple or or there two? But he comes at Passover. And he what we know about Jesus is that he completely fulfills Passover. When Jesus comes to the temple, he brings an echo of its meaning with him, the Passover had been instituted by Moses. When you read the Old Testament, we know that in the book of Exodus that God had saved and delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt. And the, the, that was done through a series of plagues that God visited and this great intensity uh, that happens until the final plague was that God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of uh, every son of Egypt. But for my people, when they put the blood over the, uh, their doorway, then I'll pass over. That's where the word comes from, Passover. That God's judgment was withheld because the blood was present. And of course, we know that it's a picture of the gospel and what would happen through Jesus. So Jesus is a echo of that Passover. It really comes to fulfill it. And we're seeing here in this incident, there are places in the Old Testament that the scripture shows us that Jesus was going to appear and do what he, what he was doing in the minor prophets in Zechariah. Interesting passage. Uh, the part of it that pertains to us is the latter part of it in our reading. It uh, talks about 
the worship and it being cleansed. Every pot in Jerusalem, every uh, in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And this is the part that is apparent in our message today in the passage. And there shall no longer be a traitor or a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So when we read this, what we, this is the very last verse in the book of Zechariah, and it speaks to the cleansing of the temple that would occur. When Jesus came, he is fulfilling what the minor prophet Zechariah, this prophet, had foretold. And then we see similarly in the book of Malachi that the Bible says about Messiah when he came, Behold, I will send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like the launderer's, like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And so when, what we're seeing Jesus do is what the prophet said Jesus would do when he came. And yet it upsets the religious establishment when Jesus comes to the temple. And Jesus is upset because of them, and they're upset because of him. Everybody's mutually upset here. But Jesus is upset because the temple had a precinct, they would call it. There was a part of the temple. This was the temple that Herod had built that that uh, had happened in about two decades. Uh, so Jesus came to a rebuilt temple that Herod had erected, and it had inside of it the holy place where the priests would go and offer incense on the altar of prayer. And also inside in the Holy of Holies was the, where the great day of atonement every year annually they would offer the blood of the sacrifices and atonement for the sins of the people. And of course it represented Christ. All of it spoke about Jesus. It spoke about the Messiah. It talked uh, uh, to the issue of God's forgiveness and salvation that was to come. It was all pictured in the way that they worship. But outside of the building proper, you had the grounds of the temple, and part of it was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was uh, where it is believed that these animals had been set up and that a ba basically a bazaar was happening. They had... It was necessary for the people when they came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to be able to have animals to offer. The doves, we know, would have been offered by poor families and the other animals that were available for sale would have been purchased and offered on behalf of the sins of people who were coming for Passover. And But the problem that Jesus has, if you kind of harmonize the Gospels in another place where this cleansing probably is portrayed. It says there that Jesus said, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So they what they're doing is necessary, but typically it didn't happen in the court of the Gentiles. And essentially what the merchants are saying, what the priest who have organized this whole uh, religious 
expression, the, the, the worship of the Jews were saying is, it is not important to us that everybody have access to God. We don't mind putting stock in the court of the Gentiles. It's not important to us that you have access to worship. And Jesus, when he comes, says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. And so part of the reason that he is angry and expresses anger, there are two factors that are at work. One is their nationalism and their pride became a way that God's salvation was limited to people. God never intended for Israel to only be about their own worship and for it to be a local uh, sort of expression of worship. God's intent from Abraham, the first what God says to Abraham is through you, Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all of the nations of, of the world. God's intent has always been that the Messiah who came would be for the, the world, for everyone. And yet they limited his intent. They had limited his intent in bringing these animals into the court of the Gentiles. But also what's, what's happening here is that Jesus is going to do two really powerful things in his coming to the temple. One is he's going to say the temple is going to be destroyed and no longer necessary to worship. And the second thing that he's going to say is the sacrificial system is going to become surpassed in me. I am the sacrifice. Now, all of that would be really arrogant unless you are who you claim to be. And Jesus claims to be Messiah, and in coming to the temple, that's what he's saying. There, he's saying this temple for the purpose of worship is no longer going to be important, and he's saying this system of animals that he's driving out is no longer going to have the same place that it had for them historically. So Jesus comes to crash this inadequate old way. That's what he's doing in this narrative, is that he comes to say, this is becoming obsolete. When we read Hebrews, that's the whole message of Hebrews, is that that system, when Jesus appeared, when the uh, advent occurred, became obsolete. So first, he's incensed by their priorities and, and their misplaced priorities, the fact that they care about the wrong things. But secondly, he's angered by their ecclesiastical abuses. What is it that makes him angry? Behind this whole uh, reality, they had money changers, but the fees were exorbitant. I don't know if you've traveled very much. If you travel to another country, one of the things that you find out is you need new currency in other countries. I've got currency in my office that I picked up when I went to Turkey or India, and you have to find some place to take your uh, American money and exchange find the exchange rate. When I went to India the first time, I had a stack of money like this and because the exchange rate uh, and the way that the currency worked, you felt like you were really rich, you know. I mean, the reality was it, it wasn't that way at all. But that's what's happened in this story too is that there, these people exchange currency so that what is necessary for the temple, uh, for them to purchase animals they, they have it because people will travel from great distances. And so there's nothing wrong with the, the idea of them being somewhere in, in the relative area of the temple to ex- provide 
currency exchange, the, what's wrong in it is that there was an agreement that extortion could take place, that people could charge exorbitant amounts of interest for the process of changing the money. And in the, in the process, what's happening is that worship and people are being devalued. Worship and people are being devalued. So the personal ambition of the, there are politics that are occurring here too between the Jewish officials and uh, their power, they sought power and control. And also uh, there was this politicizing of all of the religious process, personal ambition, profiteering, all of these things, when I look at this passage, what I see is that their worship distorted God. People wanted to know what God is like. They couldn't figure it out by watching what was happening here. It was a a way that God was being distorted and not clarified. And so Jesus fashioned a whip to drive out the animals, and he has sharp words for the offenders. In the last message that we looked at, Jesus was at a wedding. whole different kind of personality that we see at the wedding at the Cana of Galilee. What's Jesus bringing there? Joy, right? Grace, favor, provision. But here, he's bringing to them harsh truth. And so we need to get comfortable with the idea that both are included in the personality of God. Grace, favor, mercy, kindness, but also truth. And, and, and also judgment we you know we talked about even last week that God is a righteous judge he is the righteous judge and so it is within his right as God to bring truth to bear and to bring to show us what he's like in his in his person faith is not a frivolous thing to be obstructed by making his father's house and the word that's used is interesting the word we would get emporium in english that's the word they use to describe the it's like a mall you know they've turned it into some uh, religious mall and they made it a bazaar a religious bazaar and here's what jesus says when you you see how jesus interacts with the Uh, religious leaders he says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in he says you are an impediment you what their responsibility was was to make it clear how a person approached God to make it obvious how what God was like but instead what they were doing was distorting that for other people I thought what's the application here for us well I I think I used to blog I don't blog that much anymore because it seems like I'm just writing for myself but that's okay too, I guess. But I used to enjoy writing. The first blog I ever wrote was about a decline. It was probably around 2009, I think, the first time I ever wrote a blog post. It was about religious decline in North America. And I thought, what are the reasons for the, you know, the decline that we observe in North America? And one of the reasons that came to mind for me was scandals in evangelicalism and in the Roman Catholic Church, both. Both were characterized by scandals among their leaders. Among the priests in the Roman Catholic system, it was pedophilia. That was a a tremendous problem. With a lot of the prominent evangelical leaders, it was immorality. It was infidelity. 
And it was, you know, that's what characterized the movement of evangelicalism in the 80s and 90s. I could, you know, call out the names and we would recognize the major scandals and it seemed like they came week after week after week. And what happens after a while is that people stop trusting religious leaders because they treated their congregations like uh, wolves. They were eating the sheep, you know, basically. And I think if we wanted to say, what's an application, you know, now? Well, it was the leaders in those days who didn't represent God accurately. And consequently, people, the view they had of God could be distorted. But the scripture shows us, too, that Jesus was irked by that, the distortion that occurred through the way that God was represented in their worship. Psalm 69.9 is what the disciples remembered about Jesus when he uh, drives the uh, animals and the people who are in the court of the Gentiles out of the temple precinct. And Psalm 69.9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. They remembered that Jesus' behavior, because we said before when we look at the wedding at Canaan, Jesus hesitates when he's asked to by his mother to solve the problem. Remember that? His mother says, they are out of wine. He says, what's that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And then we said Jesus' hour had to do with the fact that when he began his public ministry from that point forward, he was in conflict with these people who would plot to kill him and would kill him. And, and, and of course, it didn't happen without his consent. He consented to die in our place. But when he goes to the temple and he acts the way he does here, the disciples say this was an act in this drama between he and these religious officials that was going to eventuate in his death. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And they remembered that the scripture said exactly that would be true about Messiah. In spiritual community, we strive for accuracy related to God's self-revelation. Uh, let me tell you a saying that bugs me a bunch. Well, I, I don't like when people say, we're going to err on the side of this or that. I hear people say that sometimes. We're going to err on the side of caution. Look, don't err on the side of anything. A much better thing is to say we strive for accuracy. Why don't we strive for accuracy? Because it's more difficult, because we have to wrestle with uh, complexity. But don't err on the side of stuff. Wade in and find out what's true and, and commit to that. That's what I prefer. I think when we err on the side of stuff, we hurt people sometimes. We go, yeah, the safe thing to say is that we're going to exclude, you know, or we're going to behave in this way. No, just figure out what the Bible says and do that. And sometimes uh, people want to, like I, I thought, if that means grace feels offensive like it did to the older brother in Luke 15, we let it feel offensive. Sometimes people wrestle with grace. Oh, it seems too simple. It seems like, how could God let us off the hook? We don't deserve to be let off the hook. Exactly, that's the point of grace. Grace is that you don't deserve to be let off the hook, but God lets you off the hook. Not because of you, but because of Christ. And the older brother in the story in Luke chapter 15 is wrestling with, what this brother of mine squandered your livelihood in prodigal living, and you still accepted him. 
Yep, that's how grace works. Grace is the undeserving getting what they do not deserve. It is the gift of God given because of Christ's sacrifice. So if we're wrestling with grace and it feels offensive, we let it feel offensive. Jesus tells a story about a a person who, I don't know if you've ever seen like the Department of Labor where you have day laborers there, but sometimes like people will go and pick up day laborers at the Department of Labor and they'll hire people to work for the day. And Jesus tells a story like that. He says this man needed help, and he went and he picked up day laborers, and he picked up a bunch of them in the morning. By the end of the afternoon, like as it was almost time for stuff to be over, he went and picked up more people. And at at time to pay them, he paid them all the same thing. And those who had been picked up early in the morning were grumbling, wait a minute, we've been working all day, and... But the the point of the story is, it's not about your work. It's about God's goodness and about God's grace. And that is the point of the story that Jesus tells. So if grace feels offensive, we just let it feel offensive. But if holiness is off-putting so that so-called cultural Christians uh, feel offended by uh, truth, then we let it be off-putting. We let it be offensive because we're striving for accuracy. We, want, we don't want God to be distorted by our compromises. We don't dumb God down, and we don't erect man-made barriers. Both are wrong. We strive to know God accurately. And what you see in this story is a failure in that way, that God, through their behavior, was distorted. But the passage shows us, too, Jesus was cagey because they were spiritually insensible. Have you ever heard Jesus called cagey before? I bet you haven't. I was struggling to find the word. What is it? When Jesus speaks in riddles, what is he? What is he? Coy? I don't know. Cagey, I think. Because Jesus is speaking to these people in riddles. There is no question. He's saying something to them. I I think, like, go back and put yourself in their shoes. If he said to you in the same situation, tear down this temple, and in three days I'm going to erect it, you would think what? He's talking about this physical building. You wouldn't think metaphorically. You would think he's going to tear down this building, and he says he can build it back in three days. An absurd claim. That's what they said. But Jesus is being cagey with them because they are obtuse. That's the word. That's what it means to be spiritually insensible. Because they say, they can see what Jesus is doing. What do they ask? What's the question? What sign do you show us so that we know that you have the right to do this? What was the sign that Jesus had shown them? He braided a whip. He chased the merchants out of the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He drove out the people that were selling doves in the uh, court of the Gentiles. He says, that is your sign. There's your sign. That would have been the plain answer, right? What's the sign? Well, here's the sign. I just did all these things that Messiah would do. I cleansed the temple. Go read Zechariah uh, 14.21 or go read Malachi chapter 3. I'm coming to you as a refiner's fire. I'm coming to you as a, to, to scrub clean the problems. The physical act was the sign. So Jesus is cagey because they're 
short-sighted. Jesus speaks to him in a riddle. And this confounded, it did two things, and you see him do it over and over again in the Bible. It confounded those who hated and opposed him, and it intrigued and teased faith out of those who were sincere. That's what it does. You can see examples of it. We'll look at one in just a few moments. But it either would provoke people to scorn and ridicule, or it would cause them to seek further and Jeremiah puts it this way. How do we know like where we are in our commitment to seek truth? Are we seeking truth, really? Well, here's what the Bible says. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is how God behaves towards sincerity, when he sees it in human beings. If it wasn't sincere, he's cagey. Either way, he's cagey. He speaks in riddles to people. But the sincere person goes, I want to know what's behind this obscure saying you're saying. And they go further. But if the person has no confidence or faith in Christ, they become scornful. They become uh, opposers. So I love that God rewards. In fact, it says that in Hebrews. It says that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We don't have to worry about if our sincerity is searching for truth with God. He says, hey, I'll reward those who carefully seek after me. Or here in Jeremiah, seek me. If you're sincere, you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. So God commends that in humans. But not if it's uh, the, the way it is in the story. So there's no move, uh, willingness here to move beyond mindless religion. That's what they have. They don't have a religion that engages God with the heart. They don't have a religion that wakes up every day and goes, how can I surrender my personality more and more to God? How can I be a worshiper today? That wasn't where, where these folks were. It was the location of what they wanted out of religion was different than that. And it's why Jesus is angry, because it's a distortion, because it is uh, not helpful. And Jesus tells this same group of people later on. He says, you, you, in the morning you wake up and you say, it's going to be stormy day because the sky is red and threatening. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. He tells them, you are fixed on the temporal. You're not serious and sincere. And his riddles, when we see them in Scripture, just call forward the inner reality of the heart. What's going on in the heart? Well, the way that Jesus teaches and speaks calls it forward. And then we see too in this passage that Jesus is non-committal because he saw through people. This is what God is like. This is how Jesus is, and Jesus is God. Jesus was non-committal because he saw through people. He didn't need anybody to say to him, "Well, you know the thing about people, is they can be reactionary and impulsive. They can be uneven and insincere. They can be fickle and unfaithful. They're emotionally up and down. They jump on and off of fads. Jesus didn't need anybody to say any of that to him. The scripture says he knows what's in people. He had no faith in their kind of faith. That's what the Bible is saying. He didn't commit anything to them because he knew what was inside of humans and he knew whether their faith was earnest or insincere. 
he knew that what they had, the way one writer or commentary put it, is not the sound, persevering faith necessary for salvation. In other words, Jesus came, the people saw the signs that he did, they heard water had been turned into wine, or they saw that he drove people out of the temple, or they later would hear that he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they believed in him, but the Bible says he didn't believe in them. He didn't commit anything to them because he knows what's inside of people. He knows when faith is sincere or not. Jesus told a whole parable about that, that the disciples, when they heard it, were like, tell us more. Right? When, when we we're familiar with this. It's the parable of the sower. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the application of the parable that he had told. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So what we see is that Jesus says, he speaks here about types of people. Types of listeners, hearers, or hearts, or soils. And the gospel is sown. In other words, the truth about Jesus is told. And the Bible says it is met with four kinds of receptions. That's what the story is here. And in one case, it's like if you just put it in the parking lot out there. If you put a seed in the parking lot, unless it's very resilient like that pasture grass that grows up in the cracks out there, It doesn't have a chance it's going to be blown away or the birds are going to come and eat it. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a heart like that. There's a heart that heard the gospel, but the the gospel didn't go anywhere in that heart because it was like asphalt. He said there's another kind that's like rocky soil. And, And what he means there is they would have like a layer of shale, a shell underneath, S H A L E, shale. It would be like, here's the dirt. You go down about seven or eight inches, and here's another layer so that when the root starts to go down, when it gets really hot, it has nowhere to go. It'll hit that. That's the end of it. And he says, there's no fruit. And then he talks about the seed that got cast among thorns. So it starts to grow up. It has a chance. But then so many things happen that it doesn't become fruitful and productive. But he says, there's another kind of heart, another kind of soil one in which the word is received and becomes fruitful in the life of that person. So there's a faith that falters and a faith that is fruitful, and Jesus knows the difference. And when he's interacting with these people and he sees the their behavior of people who are supposed to be religious, uh, religiously grounded, he, he does not commit to them. He doesn't commit to them because he knows what's inside of people. Peter wrote that when the people of God go through difficulty, it ought to be clear that they're suffering because of holy living, not because of the neglect of it. So we think about what's going on in this story. What's going on? 
Well, here's how it's put there, and I think it dovetails into what we're discussing here. Peter said about the church, because by this time he is writing about the church, not the temple. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so Peter, in writing, says, if you read it in context, he says, when people suffer, when people go through difficulty, and it's, we need to, I always look for a connection. Why is this happening? Even if it's like little suffering that, like, I have at times. I'll have little suffering that feels big to me because I got little baby emotions. But it's like, what's going on here? Well, truthfully, what's going on often is God is assessing what's going on in you. God is showing us. God is testing us. And he, he is trying us to make us better. And the Bible says, when the Bible uses the word judgment, it's the word crisis. Crisis uh, is the word. If you go back and look at it, it literally came into English from right here. A crisis is the intersection. The intersection is a place where we decide what's next. Where are we going? Are we going to respond appropriately, properly, you know, to God or, or not? And the Bible says God is bringing us in as the household of God. He brings us into judgment. Not just us, but this was written to be timeless for the people of God for all time. God has the right to scrutinize his people. And our portrayal of God matters. And we're depicting God. We may either help other people to see God or hinder their vision by how we represent him. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he said this, You yourselves are, are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In other words, Paul was being criticized. He's, they were saying, hey, Paul, we read your reference or your resume. There are no really weighty references at the end. You know how you do a resume and it's like at the end you've got to have some references? They're like, hey, we read your resume. You don't have any references. He's like, Go look in the mirror. Go look in the mirror. You're the reference from my ministry. He's like, the way Christ is formed in you and the way you are. He says, you're the story that God is telling. Is the gospel real in you? That's the question that he puts to them. He says, if so, you become our, the letter of recommendation. My reference is you and how your discipleship is and whether or not Christ is formed in you. Jonathan Edwards, who was a figure in the first um, Great Awakening in North America and considered one of the greatest theological thinkers, even though he had problems like everybody else, but he says, a true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an incidental thing. It's a great, his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ, to be holy as he is holy. In this way, God's magnified and clarified through us in our pursuit of holiness. And so the question is, are, do we clarify God or distort him? I think if we want to make application from the passage, do we clarify God or do we distort him? How would God feel about our religious behavior? Are we, are we wrestling with truth as though it were, uh, is worth the commitment? That's the question. Let's pray. We'll have a time of uh, commitment as we sing. And as you've listened, it may be obvious to you that there's a, 
a way you need to respond. I don't know everybody's hearts. I try to know my own as best as possible. It may be that as you've listened, there's a way that God's made clear to you. You need to adjust your life and align it in obedience and pursue him in holiness. Or it may be clear to you that you've never truly come to know Jesus in a real and personal way. And I don't know, but Jesus definitely knows. And so as you listen, he'll make clear to you what your need is. And I think our journey in discipleship is always to keep adjusting our life to him in obedience and faithfulness. Father, we are truly grateful that you love us enough to give us difficult passages of Scripture that when we read them, sometimes they point fingers in our faces and they call us into account and they show us that there's a difference between what you want and what you find at times. There's a difference in where we are and where we need to be and so Thank you that that's your commitment is to show us truth. And then in your truth we see grace, God. We see kindness and favor. But also we see holiness. We see judgment. And so God, help us to receive what you show us with the right attitude of heart. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?